From the Virginia Policy Review, this is Academical. Every episode, we peek under the hood to explore how the machine of public policy works. We ask, how do we define the problem? How do we measure success? Who decides the solution? What are the unintended consequences? We break through the noise of daily news to understand what's really going on. Welcome back to The Academical. I'm your host, Gary Christensen. And today I had such a good conversation with one of my favorite professors here at University of Virginia, Professor Dan Player. He's an associate professor of public policy at the Frank Batten School of Leadership here at UVA, and his research focuses on education policy. He received his doctorate in economics from the University of Washington. And before he came to the University of Virginia, he was a policy researcher at Mathematica. And today I got to chat with him about his experience there in kind of the broader landscape of public and private partnerships, how contracts are awarded, the pros and cons of that system, and specifically what role research plays in policy creation. So it's a really good look at kind of the ground level of policy. Like where do these things start? And so it's one of my favorite conversations we've had so far. I think you all are really going to enjoy it. So um, without further ado, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to have you on. Thanks for joining us. So if you could start off um, by just giving us a little bit of background, how'd you end up at Mathematica? What do they do? And what were you kind of working on specifically? Yeah, so it, it's funny when you uh, ask these questions, I realize that my path is maybe it's not, this is not instructive what you should do necessarily. But I, um, you know, I went to do a PhD in economics. I really loved uh, the field. I love the way that uh, economics helped me think about problems. And I always had in the back of my mind that I wanted to be at a university as a faculty member. And when it time to came time to graduate, I applied to a bunch of academic positions, but uh, I applied to exactly one non-academic position. Um, and that was at Mathematica because I had a friend who loved working there. He just said, it's such a great place to work and you should come join us. So I applied there and I was, uh, I went and in mean, my interview uh, was really struck with how thoughtful they were, how smart the people were who were working there, um, what a good collaborative environment it was, and, and that they were doing important research, you know, that they were doing things that policymakers really cared about. So, so I, and when it came time to, to choose, I sort of surprised myself and chose the uh, Mathematica job and really loved my time there, uh, enjoyed the people I worked with, enjoyed the projects I work on. And, and what Mathematica did is they're primarily government contractors who work with the um, different organizations in the government. So I was on the education side, I was working primarily with the Department of Education and specifically what's called um, the Institute for Education Sciences, which is the research arm of the Department of Education. When I first got there, I was working a lot on a, a randomized control trial where they're randomly assigning students to traditionally and alternatively certified teachers. But I was also working on a project that uh, was looking at farmers in Armenia um, and training them to, to be better wow. farmers, to use their crops more efficiently. So there was really a broad uh, portfolio of things that I was working on, but mostly in education with Department of Ed as, my, as our client. Could you kind of start walk us through like start to finish, uh, maybe specify one of the projects you got to work on? 
Well, I'll tell you about a project that sounds very similar to what I described. It's, it's slightly different. And this was a t- evaluation of Teach for America. They just were kind of curious about questions like, is Teach for America good for kids or not? And so um, while they weren't explicitly designing policy around that question, they were interested in the answer to that question and providing uh, guidance that then the Department of Education could, um, you know, I think it would, I'm not sure exactly their justification for why that was a, that should be a federally funded project. But, um, but anyway, there, it was a follow-on to an earlier Mathematica study that had been done. Um, so Mathematica had done it in the elementary school level and they were interested, well, what about the high school? What about high school teachers? Are they as good as their, their peers? So the way that it works is they um, wrote an RFP, which they said, we are interested in understanding whether Teach for America teachers are at the high school level as good as their non-Teach for America counterparts in the same schools. Um, and the RFP would be pretty detailed. You know, here's what we're looking for. Um, can, you, can you clarify yeah. RFP for us as well? Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. The request for proposals. Yes, thank you. Perfect. So it was a request for proposals. So they would send it out to the main research firms, which are Mathematica, uh, in this space at least. It's Mathematica, MDRC, um, Apt Associates, AI. IR, but really it's, it's anyone. There are also a lot of small businesses um, that, that bid on these as well. And once this is released, then Mathematica quickly, you know, they said, uh, this is the way that worked in education. There was kind of a proposal season when they would release a bunch of requests for proposals. We would decide which ones we wanted to bid on. Um, we knew that we had a good shot at winning this one because we'd done the earlier study. So we'd have about two weeks of intense writing, you know, like, here's what we're going to do. Here's why we're going to do it. Here's the justification for this is the right approach. Here's what we know from the literature previously. They're pretty, they're pretty in depth and pretty intense. And then they would come with, you know, the, a detailed price tag for what this type of project would, would run. Um, and it was, I think the, the shocking thing for me being new at this was just how expensive it is to do these sorts of things. You know, um, this is, that one I think was a four or five year project that was, anyway, I don't remember the exact price tag of it, but it's in the neighborhood of about $10 million for you wow. know, um, four or five years. Once you win this contract, you'd have to figure out, okay, what, what size of a sample do we need in order to best have our best chance of detecting the sample size that would be meaningful? I'm mean, sorry, the, the effect size that would be meaningful. So we would, um, that would be part of our proposal. We would say, we're going to need to, you know, we're going, to need, we're going to need to find 200 schools that we're willing to randomly assign students to teachers. And then that first year of the project is really going out and flying to New York City and flying to Dallas and flying to Houston and flying to Los Angeles and wherever we can and, and showing up at schools and saying, hey, this is what we want to do. This is why we think it's important. Are you willing to let us randomly assign kids in your school to different types of teachers? So, um, it's pretty intense. And then for that one in particular, another expense that I hadn't anticipated was there is no good like, common test. This was, we, were, we were focusing on math. So there's no like off-the-shelf test that you can just give to everyone or that they're already taking anyway. So we had to um, essentially subcontract the NWEA, which is the Northwest Education, I forget, Evaluation something. Anyway, they, they do um, computer adaptive tests 
and they had to design essentially design a test for us they had to we had to have laptops that we would go into schools and have the kids take the tests and um yeah, it's a, it's not not a low cost research project, which it, I think for a lot of people, that's the appeal of, of a place like Mathematica is, hey, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it right. Like we're going to do it exactly right. We're going to randomly assign kids. We're going to measure before and after. We're going to, you know, we're going to follow up. We're going to avoid attrition and um, and the studies are going to be really well done. Sorry, I just realized I went off on that with that. I don't know. No, that was, it was fantastic. It was so much to unpack there. There was a piece within the study that you your firm also then subcontracted out. Yeah. And I think this speaks to the broader um, complexity and entanglement of these private public partnerships. When you first arrived, what was your take? Did you kind of um, over underestimate or estimate correctly kind of how that world worked, that landscape? Or were you also surprised at how, um, again, entangled it all is? I was surprised at the number of uh, specialists that are out there like these small firms that specialize in very particular tasks like um you know there are firms that just specialize in in doing surveys you know so that we might mm -hmm. subcontract and mathematica did their own in-house but a lot of people would just you know subcontract with people who just design and and um and uh what's the word i'm looking for and they send out surveys for people to collect and and um so that's you know, I think the, the degree of specialization, there are a lot of, um, one of the things I didn't realize also about subcontracting was that many government contracts have built in a provision at the outset that a certain amount has to go to um, small business, small minority and women owned businesses. Mm -hmm. And so um, there are, are a fair number of small minority and women owned businesses that are specialized in tasks that can be um latched on to these big evaluations so that they're not big enough to be able to do the whole thing but they're but they know that they will always have a place in government contracts because they're built in so like you know a contract will say 30 percent of this has to go to a small minority and women-owned business and so they are um you know, those, those firms are in pretty high demand when it comes during proposal season, because all of these big contractors are saying, Hey, we need you, you know, you've got a good reputation for the work that you do. Um, you know, can you help us out with this project? So, um, so I think that's an encouraging thing. I think that, you know, this is, it is, there is a good spot. They're being thoughtful or, you know, I've been away now for a while, but I assume that this is still true that there are firms, um, that are, you know, they're set asides for these firms. And I, I see that as a way to, to spread this out. so it doesn't become just AIR, Mathematica, um, apt associates that are getting all the money from these contracts. If you could zoom out a little bit and talk about what you think the role of these types of research or, or what level of influence they have in actual policy creation. So does the Department of Education take your results and is it just one piece of a massive puzzle or are there instances that you saw where, you know, what you're what you're telling them might actually have, you know, major influence on, on policy creation? This depends on the organization you're working with. As I mentioned, the IES is sort of the research arm of the Department mm -hmm. of Education. And most of the things that they're producing are um, really just advisory to policy. Um, there are other examples, though, that Mathematica can point to specifically where they did big randomized control trials and they found, like, for instance, there was a 
when I was there, there was they, there was a lot of talk on the health side about something they had done about in-home care, and um, and they actually, you know, the government went and changed their rules based on the findings from this randomized control trial that they had done. Um, but it's not it's not uh, you know m- much of the policy has written in the requirement that there be a level of evaluation to some degree, and there's no policy that they have to. <laughs> that they have to observe. I mean, there's no there's no written in um, guarantee that they have to listen mm-hmm. to those findings. Uh, one example that's a, or a concrete example of this is when I first got to Mathematica. Uh, this was this is, will date me a bit, but this is during the second Bush administration, and they had commissioned a study of one of their big things was abstinence only sex ed and. So one of the big things they did is they commissioned a large randomized controls trial um, where they are randomly assigning kids to different uh, sex ed curricula. And one of them was an abstinence only. And Mathematica found that it was no, it was not effective at, at um, deterring kids from their first sexual experience and, and other findings that were not particularly favorable towards abstinence only education. To the, uh, I can't remember, I guess that was health and human services that was funding that. Um, to their credit, they didn't try to hide the findings, but they also didn't do anything with them. You know, so it was, uh, during mm-hmm. the Bush administration, nothing changed. They right. did, you know, they were willing to put this out there, but also willing to ignore it. Did you notice a difference in who was reaching out when different administrations were in charge or the questions that were being asked were slated different ways? Or what was the relationship there? Yeah, it's a great question because it, it illustrates that policy and politics are obviously not the same thing. And um and I think I was surprised at how, in general, insulated we were from the politics side of this. So I, um, I, I was there during an interesting transition because we were going from Bush to Obama, and there was uh, there was a lot of question about how would this affect our work. And Paul Decker, who was the president, I think still is the president of Mathematica, president and CEO, uh, assured us that. I, he had weathered this storm before, and you know much of the what we were doing was driven by the bureaucracy of the the government, which he didn't expect to change. Now, I think over time there can be a different focus. Like as I mentioned, there was a really heavy focus when I was working with the Department of Education on increasing the rigor of education research. Um, I think those are the types of things that you see more, and the types of questions being at being asked. But those are slower to move, I think, than the political landscape, which shifts much more quickly. Uh, partly it's because these studies take so long. <laughs> when the um, abstinence-only findings came out, and I was really curious how it would be received and what kind of backlash we would have. And as you could expect, um, there, was, there was a lot of, from both sides, people pushing on the results, like in op-eds and those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. But the government was willing to stand behind the rigor of the study that had been done. What is the definition of public policy? Oh, I was hoping you wouldn't ask this. Um, <laughs> I tend to see it broadly as a set of decisions that affect um, people who are in who, who are not directly involved in making the decisions. So um, I see I see it beyond just what uh, governments can do, and I see it as you know decisions that that are being made. Um, I guess the government is always sort of in the background because they have the authority that no one else does. Um, but 
but you know, I think there's a lot of public policy involved when it comes to, you know, market concentration and um, and the actions of large corporations that affect people who don't, you know, who who aren't directly involved. Like anything involving spillovers is is potentially a public policy concern that needs to be addressed in some way. Is there anything that you could change? Wave, wave a magic wand, change something about the way the research is done for the government, whether it's on the bidding side, the contract, the execution. Is there anything that stands out to you? There, uh, maybe if I could take two things, and one sure. of them is kind of in the weeds. One is that the government, at least, again, you know, I don't know that this is true universally for all government contracting, but the Department of Education was very... Um, uh, I don't know the right word. They they were not very open. Besides the experts that we had on our technical working group, they were not very open about getting input along the way, which is not the way academic research works. So, for instance, they would essentially embargo any results. We couldn't present anything, um, any preliminary results. We couldn't even really present descriptive statistics on our sample until everything had been cleared by the Department of Education. And, and I think, and that was, and, that, and then by that point, it's too late to get input. It's too late to get mm-hmm. feedback because it's like, okay, the report just came out. Now we can finally share it. And that I think a lot of people at Mathematica would agree with me and other, and other places that work in government contracting, that it's a frustrating and sort of nonsensical um, rule that they have that doesn't allow you to get collaborative feedback from smart people who might not, you know, be indirectly, uh, might be indirectly related to the field or whatever. So that's one thing is that they are um, pretty closed off to that, especially early in the process. The second is, and I don't know how to fix this, but I think the other frustration that a lot of people feel in uh, government contracting is exactly some of the things you've alluded to is how do we actually make this binding in some way like the how do we build in decisions based on this because just like um academic researchers feel sometimes they you do a lot of work and you're really careful to make sure you get it right and it's disappointing to see that it's not used it's not um you know it's not publicized and uh, and you know you think what did we do all this for if we're not going to make any you know, if they're not going to make any changes, how do we actually get people to listen to what we're doing? <laughs> how do we actually get policy <laughs> to be informed by what we're doing? And we have never come to that. No one has ever figured that out. Is it harder and harder to get things listened to and publicized? Yeah, I think uh, I, I see I see that. And I um, I think this goes back to the fact that so much of it is ignored, that it feels like we have so much that we've never done anything about. You know, I, I think if we were actually in the ideal, if we were doing studies that then provided actionable uh, conclusions and then we were acting on those conclusions, you know, there's no end to the number of questions that we could be asking to guide us, right. to guide the ship in the right direction. But it certainly does feel superfluous if if we're doing these big studies and no one's looking at them. No one's listening. And, I, right. and, and they've done a lot to try to get research in people's hands. Um, I, I think part of the problem is probably that there isn't enough buy-in at the beginning that this is the right set of questions to be asking. Um, and I think if there was more buy-in at the beginning and, and it was publicized, like they, the department, you know, we're going to do a study on this topic 
um, I think there would potentially be more demand for, uh, you know, responding to the results in, mm. in a study that had buy-in. But that's that's hard to again because these studies are so long. It's the public does not have a six-year uh, attention span to wait for the results to come out of a study that they are amped up about. So I don't know the right yeah. answer. No, yeah, that's 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 good. Just something that I was wondering about. The general public has not even a six day attention span. I think yeah. so. Oh, yeah. yeah, there's no yeah. chance, no chance at, at that. But it's super fascinating. I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, I thought that was very interesting and enlightening. Hopefully, um, you found it enjoyable as well. Oh, I loved it. Yeah, it was great chatting with you. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions, comments, pitches, email us at virginiapolicyreview at gmail.com. See you next time.